the most counterintuitive aspect of this for me is is how do you make something which is soft to deform yet stiff to support loads to be able to incorporate different functions and it turns out that for a lot of at least in my lab a lot of things that we want to do we often are stuck <laughs> in this position right where where it has to be soft but it has to be stiff and for us that's that's an exciting place because then you can begin to think about incorporating you know new materials new geometries kind of even as you mentioned Marwa early on was you know how do you how do you power it without giving it power right how do we maybe harvest energy or how do we get energy from the environment that we can utilize for what we need In this podcast, I'm sharing my passion and curiosity for soft robotics, where we share inspiring stories about the work we do and how we can push the limit. I am Mara Dweeney, and this is Soft Robotics Podcast. Support for this show comes from Science Robotics Journal. I really find science robotics to be a great resource for reliable and tangible research where we can really push the limit of the science we do in robotics. Great way to stay up to date with the published article is checking out the released monthly issue. All the links will be included in each episode description. We will also happen to have a regular conversation on the most published science robotic articles where also you can contribute with your question and thoughts about the research. Thanks, Science Robotics, for sponsoring Soft Robotics Podcast. So first of all, congratulations for the paper. And I think it's very interesting if you can maybe tell briefly the paper idea about shape morphing and why it's very interesting maybe to be able to listen to what shape morphing actions of robotics. Yeah, Yeah, sure thing. So when we when we started the project a few years ago, we wanted to work on this, I think, pretty large challenge in soft robotics, where you want to have a system which is soft and highly deformable, um, but still be able to support loads. And, you know, this kind of contradiction between soft enough to deform yet stiff enough to support uh, loads that may be required for, for different functions, whether that's, you know, grasping something or perhaps allowing for locomotion or even maintaining a shape uh, to protect uh, something else. So when we set out to to kind of explore this and try to, I guess, solve this problem, we wanted to make something that was soft enough to deform, yet rigid enough to maintain shape, and ideally be able to go between different shapes, and while you're in a specific shape, hold that shape without consuming any power. So that was kind of our approach to this, this shape morphing concept was to have something which not only changes shape, but can maintain those shapes and maintain that shape without consuming power and to go between different shapes. So to kind of, I guess, tackle that, um, you know, essentially we wanted three things. A material which could achieve complex shapes, hold that shape, and then be able to go to a different configuration and to do this over many cycles. So, you know, there's been a variety of, of ways people have approached this problem of, of shape morphing in the past. And the, the way that we ended up kind of coming at this problem was we, we took three different components that we brought together. We combined uh, concepts in kirigami, in kirigami engineering. We also took some inspiration from uh, phase change materials, which allowed us to create what we called these metal endoskeletons. And then we also incorporated an uh, embedding heating element that allowed us to... Um, activate some of the shape change characteristics. So those were the kind of the three essential ingredients, these kind of kirigami structures, a metal endoskeleton, and then this embedded heater. And, and those three components came together in what we call the, a kirigami composite sheet, where it was essentially a, a sheet of elastomer, so a soft deformable material, it had this metal endoskeleton, which was this kind of architectured um, piece of fields metal, which is a low melting point alloy. 
And we also used uh, liquid metal heaters that we kind of incorporated as an additional layer um, near these uh, metal endoskeletons. Great. Maybe I want to ask you here about, uh, I think it's very interesting, the, st- the three structures you mentioned uh, in the paper, but I want to ask you when it comes to morphing, uh, do you think the material and architecture, how much of one of them is more significant to achieve shape morphing, the material part or architecture? Yeah, so I think that's a, an excellent question. It, it's something we really thought a lot about. Um, and I guess kind of the the conclusion that we came in that we came to in our paper, and I think what really allowed uh, the capabilities that we showed again this shape morphing, locking, reversibility, uh, and the ability to achieve complex shapes. Um, I would actually say that it was really the combination of the structure as well as the materials that we used. So let me let me elaborate on that a little bit. So. Um, you know, kirigami, origami, these kinds of uh, structural approaches for shape change have really opened up a lot of possibilities, um, I think, for the field to, to go from something flat to something, you know, highly curved or have, you know, curves where you, where you would want them. Um, and it turns out that some of those architectures are stable. So in other words, if you take a flat sheet, you can, you can change the shape of that sheet. And in some instances, depending on the, the folds or the cuts, there are certain geometries that will be stable. So you can effectively change the shape, let it go, and it will stay there. So that's, that's effective. Um, and it is something that you know, could achieve this uh, highly deformable yet also uh, load-bearing configurations. Um, but it turns out that in, in a lot of those instances, one of the challenges is that the, the shapes that you can achieve are often uh, designed in uh, prefabrication. In other words, you often have a, a sheet of material that is designed to, to go to a certain set of configurations. And, um, and that's, that's one of the beautiful things about the kirigami origami approach is that you can achieve these really interesting shapes. However, um, you know, one of the challenges within those still is that they're often composed of something which is thin, something which is soft. And in, in many instances, those structures are not able to support loads in, in multiple directions. And uh, additionally, again, they are often uh, prescribed for certain configurations. So I, I think one of the things we really tried to do in this work was um, you know, leverage some of these capabilities in terms of, of highly deformable structures but introduce, I think, new material concepts into those structures, which then allow us to achieve um, really any kind of shape configuration that we want that can be load-bearing in multiple directions. Um, And that material also allows us to be able to go reversibly between different configurations. So the the material aspect that we incorporate here is this, this metal endoskeleton. And this is a Again, it's a low melting point alloy called Fields Metal, which melts around 60 degrees Celsius. And, and people have used this for um, phase change, stiffness tuning in the past. So in other words, at room temperature, it's solid. Once you go above 60 degrees, it's a liquid. So that allows you a large range of stiffnesses. So one of the things that we, we did here was we took some of the, the characteristics of, of that metal and we then essentially structured that metal um, into this kind of highly architectured uh, kirigami-like geometry. And we kind of embedded that within this elastomer that has the origami or kirigami-like structures. And, and what that allows us to do then, so for example, with our sheet, if you, if you take it and you, you can actually stretch it, and when you let go, it will maintain the shape that you let it go in. And then if you take it again, you can stretch it further or in a different direction. It will then go and stay into that new configuration. And the reason that's important is, again, now we don't have to prescribe the specific shape that we're targeting beforehand. We can actually, in this case, we made a, a essentially a homogeneous pattern uh, that was the same across the entire sheet. And we, we use that metal to actually lock in those different configurations. And I, I think one of the interesting things that we, we did in the paper was um, we actually leveraged a common failure mechanism in materials, which is called plasticity. 
or plastic deformation. So, you know, a lot of times when you're taking engineering courses, you're learning about, you know, preventing plastic deformation or preventing yield uh, because that is often a failure. However, for, for soft material shape morphing, it turns out that when we, we take that metal and we deform it, what actually happens is that near the ends of the kirigami cuts, the metal endoskeleton plastically deforms. And what that allows us to do then is when we stretch something, we induce plasticity locally, and that then allows that shape to hold in position um, because that deformation, plastic deformation, is, is, is permanent. Um, so that was the, the advantage of using the metal. But as I kind of led with, you know, we also wanted to maintain reversibility. And the important part about using the low melting point alloy is that we can actually heat it up to, you know, reasonable temperatures, 60 degrees Celsius, and it will then go into a liquid state. And then at that point, the elastomeric membrane that it's in is, is able to effectively pull it back uh, to its initial configuration. So this is where we kind of introduced this mechanism that we called, you know, reversible plasticity. So leveraging what is normally a permanent deformation, but making it reversible through material selection. So again, I think, you know, a lot of what we tried to accomplish here was, was, was leveraging the, the, the advances we've seen in, in origami and kirigami for structural um, reconfiguration, but also, you know, introduce maybe some material concepts that will allow us to kind of push that further. Mm -hmm. This is a really excellent idea. Maybe I want to ask you when it comes to the heating, embedding heating and the structure and to change its shape here, reconfiguration. Do you think there's alternative to heating here? If you think maybe beyond heating in the process before yeah, finishing this idea, is there any approach to you think or maybe challenging to achieve what heating is doing here? Yeah, sure. So, um, so we did, in this case, in this paper, we do focus on, so the, the plasticity allows us to go to different shapes. And, and that's great. Um, however, if we do want to effectively, without touching it, allow it to go back to where it started, um, that is the point that we introduce the heating component. So again, we can, we can take this, we can you know, change the shape of it, put it in different configurations, and it will stay there. You can take that and then you can put it into a different configuration again and it will stay there again. However, uh, the heating is really useful because it allows us to effectively you know, send this somewhere and then turn on the heaters and then have it change back uh, on its own accord. We don't have to touch it. Um, so, I mean, I'll, I'll say that you know, some of the challenges with heating, um, there are a few of them. And certainly they're, they're the ones that I think a lot of people in, in soft robotics are dealing with. Um, heating is often uh, power hungry. It does require a fair amount of energy to heat up materials to allow them to go through a phase change. So, you know, for, for us, we only have to turn on the power when we want it to come back. So we don't have to do it in between. Um, so we can save some power that way. And additionally, when we're deforming it initially, we don't have to heat it up or turn it on. We effectively can do it in kind of the passive state. Um, and then I will say one of the, one of the practical challenges with, um, utilizing phase change or in, in fact, creating heaters is, is actually the creation of the heaters is pretty non-trivial. Um, making a, a, a heater that can go to really large deformations and still be able to, um, heat up that material was certainly one of the challenges, um, in this project where, you know, we spent a fair amount of time engineering the, the effectively the structure of those heaters, the way that we fabricate those heaters, and we were able to get those to work in these highly deformed configurations. Um, but that was certainly a challenge in this project and I think is, you know, something that we can, you know, improve in the future. And there is a lot of work um, right now of people developing, you know, better um, deformable heaters, let's say. Um, and then I guess to, to, to think about, you know, what's next maybe beyond heating, like are there other mechanisms that we could use? Um, you know, so, I mean, broadly, there's, there's a variety of stimuli people have used. I think that, um, you know, we've seen a lot of shape change morphing recently with magnetic materials. 
which I think is a really interesting area. There's been a lot of inspiring work uh, there. We've also seen people use things like pneumatics to, to morph materials, which has been a very common um, approach. And I think, you know, the mechanism that we're using here uh, with these metal endoskeletons, it, it seems like heating is, is, uh, is an important aspect of that. But I'll also say that I think moving forward, we're also looking at, you know, different actuation schemes that we can incorporate with these metal endoskeletons that would allow us to achieve some of the same kind of functionalities, um, maybe reduce some of the power that may be needed uh, for heaters, and then try to effectively, you know, make it so that we have very reliable, you know, spatially controlled ways of, of changing shape across a, a sheet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe I want to ask you again about the structure, um, maybe in the heat channels, the pattern you see in the paper. Do you think that how we can design a structure to minimize, for example, the energy consumption here or increase sensitivity or how we can achieve that in structures? Yeah, I think that's that's great. So um, very good question, because, uh, you know, in this case, we, we did that to an extent. So in in our work. When we so we in the paper, I guess there's a few components to it. We we kind of developed and studied these these uh, kirigami composites. We explored and quantified how well they maintain shape upon deformation. Um, and then towards the end of the paper, we take these composite sheets and then utilize them for a few different robotic demonstrations. So the the first demonstration that we show in the paper is a, a multifunctional drone. And um, in that case, we have a, a sheet of the Kirigami composite, and we also incorporate um, the different components that you need to have a, a drone as well as something that can drive um, on the ground. And I think I'll get into more details about that later, but to, to get back to the heating point, which was that effectively what we did in that demo was we had uh, the sheet initially in a, in a U-shaped structure which allowed for the the driving mode. And then we would activate the heaters in this case to uh, take that U-shaped structure, morph it into a flat shape. And then that flat shape was what we used for the uh, quadrotor drone. And in that instance, we actually only put heaters around certain areas of the endoskeleton that we needed to transform from the U-shape to the flat shape. So I guess that's a pretty long-winded answer, but um, you know we can specifically locate heaters to enable the morphing that we need at that moment, and uh, I think that's you know a really uh, I think promising solution generally for for heating in terms of phase change is, is being able to localize, not have to heat the entire structure. And the other advantage that you'll get too is, um, you know, in this case, most of the things that we worked on were sort of, let's say, hand scale. You could hold the the composites in your hand. The robots were about hand size. Um, But as you decrease size, um, it turns out that the the time it takes to heat, the time it takes to cool, the amount of power you need to do phase change, they all go down. So as you get to smaller and smaller scales, the performance of heaters – of phase change mechanisms gets better and better. And, and we've seen this in some really great uh, work by, by a, a couple different groups now, where when you get down to these you know, tens of micron scales or maybe even a couple hundred microns, heating and cooling can be much more rapid, which then can increase your, your frequency of, uh, of operation. So I think you know, spatially locating heat, potentially downscaling the systems uh, in, in specific areas. Uh, I think those are promising avenues we can take to improve performance of these, you know, thermally activated processes. Mm-hmm. Great. Maybe I'll ask you again in this point, when you localize the heating in a certain point to achieve this um, yeah, transformation, do you think you can achieve that slowly based on the intelligence and structure, just slowly in the material part without any stimulus? Do you think this is something could be done or... Or challenging. Yeah, I think that's that's really interesting. So could we instead of so instead of having to I guess power it externally, almost power it kind of internally to the material? Um, yeah, I think I think that's really interesting. Um, right now, 
for for at least what we did, you know, we we definitely just powered it externally. Um, but I, I do think as we go forward, you know, embedding those functions more deeply into the materials, I think, is really uh, an interesting aspect. You know, if we could if we could offload um, a lot of the the components we need for heating, the electronics to control the heating. Um, and essentially embed that into the material itself. I think that's really a promising avenue. Um, I don't know right now um, how exactly we would implement that at the moment. I don't have an answer specifically to your question, but um, I think that's a really enticing uh, possibility. Or, or maybe even you know using some of the energy from the the local environment uh, that you could focus in. Uh, to activate these kinds of processes. That could also be interesting. I guess the other, you know, thing people have been looking at would be, um, you know, chemical reactions. So, you know, we're, we're sort of using resistive heating right now. So we're effectively passing a current through a wire, it heats up and, and we utilize that heat to, to induce the phase change. But, you know, if you could, if you could have, you know, certain elements of the material be uh, chemically reactive uh, to different chemicals, you could certainly imagine having these, you know, exothermic reactions that produce a lot of heat that maybe would allow these, these kind of phase changes to occur. And, and I, I think that would be, you know, a, a really nice way to do this. The, there's a lot of energy in, in chemical bonds. <laughs> and uh, if you can leverage that energy, you know, you could probably do a lot of very nice things in terms of uh, supplying heat. Mm-hmm. Maybe I want to ask you again about shape morphing. There's other interesting um, functionality when you see the transition from certain shape to another. When you think about the process of yeah, shape morphing in general, soft robotics, besides what you're doing, what are other interesting possibilities to get the shape changing? And there's other techniques. Do you think um, maybe worth uh, maybe discussing or maybe they're still not very understood very well? Yeah, yeah so... Um I mean, I guess I'm, I'm generally fascinated by shape morphing. I mean, if you look at biology, you know, it, it's so advanced with, with what animals uh, do and even plants, frankly, in nature with how they can adjust their shape, adjust their geometry to do different things. And um, I mean, you know, certainly in soft robotics, many people love the octopus um, due to this really amazing ability to reconfigure its shape, to, you know, to squeeze itself through these tiny holes um, is, is really quite inspiring, I think, for this field. Um, and so, you know, when we, when we started looking into shape morphing and how people are doing this, um, you know, we, we kind of focused on, on, on a few different things. So again, we wanted complex shapes. So there's been, you know, again, beautiful work with origami and kirigami doing that. Um, also locking shape, again, was something that we, that we are interested in. And when you're talking about locking shape, you know, you can do that with these phase change materials. You could do it with kind of, you know, magnetic um, sort of properties. There's also electrostatic approaches people have been looking at. Um, and there's there's a variety of ways to lock in place. And I think, you know, one of the things that uh, is a differentiator within that set is, you know, how much power does it take to hold that shape in place? Uh, or how much power does it take to go between different shapes? And, and, and both of those are considerations when you're, when you're thinking about what you're trying to achieve. And then, you know, the other aspect we were really interested in was, was the reversibility aspect. And, you know, we've seen, I think, some really great work with uh, pneumatic actuation where, you know, you, you either pattern the, the essentially the channels that, that uh, the pressure is flowing through or you pattern the materials so that they have different rigidities in different locations. And, and when, when you utilize those approaches, you get um, different amounts of change across a sheet. And, and those different amounts of change then allow you to um, have different uh, ultimate structures that are developing as you're applying these uh, pneumatic pressures. And, and again, those are really uh, uh, fascinating. I think also from the materials perspective, in terms of, of achieving those kinds of morphable shapes. You know, we've seen really great work with uh, liquid crystal elastomers uh, where you can actually program the molecules um, so that when they uh, go through their transitions, they end up achieving different configurations. So that's a really neat sort of molecular control over shape morphing. 
And then I think in, you know, in general for, for actuation, if you can essentially distribute how, uh, how the deformation is occurring across a sheet, that will ultimately allow you to change the, the shape and the configurations that you can get into. So, you know, we've seen, again, work with, with small scale actuators, with, with fibrous sort of actuators. Um, carbon nanotubes have been used for those kinds of things. And I think ultimately, um, you know, as a, as a field, if we can begin to, um, you know, figure out really synergistic ways to combine these, these different material aspects with the different structural aspects and then achieve actuation um, within that, you know, I think, I think sort of the holy grail of, of so much of this work is being able to effectively have a material and pixel by pixel control, you know, what the shape might be or what the rigidity might be. And, you know, to get back to the octopus, it's, it's interesting because they have effectively, or I guess, you know, generally cephalopods, they have the, abel- the ability to, to change the local topography on their skin to induce, you know, camouflage, which is really fascinating because they have this kind of local control, but then also they have the ability to change the, you know, the, the global shape of, of that system. So, you know, as, as uh, we kind of push towards morphing materials, I think this, you know, pixel by pixel control of, of stiffness, of shape, of any kind of functionality is really what a lot of people are pushing towards. Um, but of course, it's also one of the most challenging things that you can imagine. Um, and, and I think that's where a lot of exciting work is happening. Um, you know, again, again, people have looked at, you know, magnetic approaches for this as well, where they can kind of program and orient the magnetic domains. Um, so there, there's a lot of rich approaches. And I think right now it's, it's kind of, uh, you know, every day it seems like we see a new and exciting approach to achieve these kinds of functions. So it's, it's a great place to be right now uh, in this field. Yeah, great. Maybe I want to ask you if there's something you disagree with when it comes to shape morphing. Maybe in soft robotics field, you see certain approaches. Yeah, I don't think this may be uh, maybe the right approach or maybe you, you don't agree with the approach. Is there something you disagree with? Um, I would I would say that if I were to disagree with something strongly, it would be because I have the solution to it. And um, I, I don't know if I have the, the ultimate solution to it right now. Um, I mean, I think, I think generally we, we do have to think about um, what we're trying to achieve, wh- which aspects are important. Because I think, you know, we, we've seen people do things now trying to do soft robotics for like drug delivery within the body. And you know, the, the demands that you would need for that are, are probably very different than what we would need for a robot outside of the body or a, a big robot outside of the body. Um, so I think, you know, different applications probably have different approaches that are going to be most useful, most powerful. Um, so I would, I would kind of, you know, at least from my perspective, seeing how things are developing, um, it's it's hard to say that one approach is wrong or one approach is right, but I do think that certain approaches have you know strengths and weaknesses in different applications, right? Um, I mean, for for the magnetic actuation, for example, you know, I, I've seen people starting to talk about you know putting these like kind of like magnetic robots in in the body um, and and getting them to move through you know blood vessels and channels and all this, and it's been amazing to see uh, that work. Um, and, you know, there's, there's aspects of that that work really well within the body that, you know, probably wouldn't work very well if you wanted to throw a robot out the window and have it go do something else. It's, it's hard to apply the magnets, potentially, um, in, in a vast open space. And in the same way that, you know, we, we utilized some phase change characteristics. So, again, we, we did this kind of reversible plasticity mechanism, which allows us to do everything at essentially room temperature. Um, but when we do want to go back, we have to heat it up and, you know, 60 degrees Celsius is, is something that you can kind of hold in your hand for a brief amount of time. But I would also, you know, I don't know if I would want to throw that into somebody's body and say, you know, you're going to have to have this on for the next hour, uh, deal with it. Um, you know, so again, I, I don't know if there's a right or a wrong, but I do think that certain, certain schemes work better in different environments. 
Maybe I want to go back again for the multi-material, because that's also, I think, uh, the scope of the paper, multi-material. When you speak about the pattern and multi-material, if we combine different material, maybe mechanically, properties differently, how do you see the pattern can be um, yeah, investigated? For example, in the paper, you have certain pattern, but when you try to design, I will design this multi-material, and one material has certain pattern, and the other one, so... How do you see this combination of the multi-material? Do you think you understand how combining different material can give us very interesting features? Do you think that's something we understand or maybe from your experience? Yeah, so, I mean, I think ultimately, you know, multi-materials are, are going to be really essential for, for soft robotics um, and, you know, morphing materials and a lot of these, let's say, soft matter technologies um, you know, we we love elastomers. Um, I use elastomers all the time. They're they're great. You know, they're soft, they're stretchable, they feel like tissue. Um, but they they lack a lot of the functions that we need uh, for robotics, uh, for morphing materials, right? So I, I think the the integration, the incorporation of multiple materials is I don't know if it's essential, but it seems like it's really enabling. Uh, for a lot of the directions that we see uh, moving forward. And, you know, in, in our paper, again, trying to tackle this challenge of being soft and deformable, yet rigid enough to support loads, um, you know, that that is a, is a problem that can be tackled with, you know, multi-material integration. Um, and, and I think along those same lines, you know, one of the, I think the real feats of this paper <laughs> that probably um, are not at the forefront of, of what everyone sees is that, you know, we were able to make this, this thin metal endoskeleton with these highly architectured features. And what was challenging about that was, so we, we eventually came up with a process and, you know, my, my graduate student, Dogi Huang, who was uh, the co-first author on this paper, he, he developed this approach to do this. And, so we then had this, this metal endoskeleton, which was great. Um, it was this very beautiful architectured uh, piece of material. And then we had to take that and we had to incorporate it into an elastomer and we had to incorporate a heater into that. And then we had to take that entire sheet of material and because we're using kirigami, we have to cut that up. Um, we actually had to, uh, in our case, laser cut um, these features actually in between rather thin lines of our metal endoskeleton because the, the metal endoskeleton was patterned in a similar way as to the kirigami. However, the metal endoskeleton was also continuous while the kirigami cuts were essentially discrete or localized. So, you know, when you bring multiple materials together, it also opens up, I think, you know, challenges and opportunities in fabrication of, of these devices and, um, and, you know, devices, materials, and robots. Um, so yeah, I, I'm a big, uh, fan of, of multi-material integration to solve these problems. Um, and certainly in this paper, um, and in the work that we're doing in the lab, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on taking, you know, a material that can give you this function, a material that can give you this function and trying to understand how you can bring those together to, to get, you know, synergy without losing those uh, really nice capabilities that you, you brought them for. Um, so I think that is, you know, a big opportunity, both in, in material uh, design, material synthesis, fabrication, integration. Um, I think it's really a, a promising avenue for a lot of the challenges in the field. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll ask you if you change the pattern, maybe if we maybe assume that you change the pattern, would you change the, maybe the trade-off between being soft and stiff to hold the object and still stretch? Do you think how the likely would it change the objective here? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we we do discuss this in the paper. So um, in in our approach, the the geometry is really essential to the function, and the material that we use is also essential to the function. So. You know, we show in the paper that, um, and I think you can kind of imagine this, if you have a sheet of material, in this case, let's say a piece of rubber, and we put this kind of metal endoskeleton within it, um, when we deform that rubber, if the metal endoskeleton is too rigid, it, it's too hard to, to, to deform it. 
if the metal endoskeleton is too soft, what happens is that when you deform it, the elastomer, that rubber, actually has enough restoring force to, to pull it back to, to where it originally started. So in, in our case, the way that we treated this was effectively with the kirigami, you create an array of, of beams. Um, and we know the stiffness of a beam depends upon the material it's made out of, as well as the structure. So things like the thickness, how wide it is, um, how deep it is into the plane. And we had to carefully tune the uh, stiffness of the metal endoskeleton to the elastomer so that when we you know, take the material and deform it, it can be deformed. But at the same time, when we, when we reach the point that we want it to, to fix into shape, when we let go, we want that material to stay there. So the metal endoskeleton has to be stiff enough. And I would say that you know, one of the advantages we found here in terms of bringing geometry and materials together was that both the, the metal as well as the structure, they go through a, a nonlinearity, which is to say that you know, when you take a, a kirigami film, what happens is that when you first pull on it, it it's, it's kind of stiff. And then at some point, it becomes much, much softer. And that's because these, these cuts effectively open up. And when they open up, you then get the ability to deform them much, much, much more without increasing a lot of the mechanical energy in that structure. And at the same time, the, the metals that we use also, they go from an elastic response to this plastic response. So I think, you know, one of the things that we found was the ability for the material to plastically deform, the ability for the structure to go from stiff to, to highly extensible. Um, if you kind of match those up, you do get the ability to, to significantly deform the material without putting a, a lot more energy into the rubber to pull the entire thing back to where it started. So there is, there is a, a big element of um, design when we, when we put, you know, trying to get the sort of maximum performance um, in this system. Maybe a good question here. What should we consider when you're matching the transition from being soft to stiff and matching to stiff? Is there something you should consider in this yeah, very, very important uh, yeah, yeah, I think it's I think it's really important, and um, you know, so from and the thing too about uh, kirigami and origami in general is that when when you begin patterning these materials with cuts or folds, um, you open up a huge parameter space in terms of what you can vary, um, whether that's you know as simple as like how long a cut is, or maybe as complex as you know what is the the structure of the cut as you go across the film. Does it, does it change? Is it the same? And, and by doing that, you know, you can begin to induce, you know, different properties across the sheet. And, and that's been one of the, I think, you know, real hallmarks of origami and kirigami is that very quickly, very rapidly, you can take the same material, control the structure, and you can induce a, a huge range of properties across that sheet. And, you know, for, for what we're trying to do with, with utilizing these structures to, to hold the shape, um, it became, you know, very evident to us that we, we kind of had to focus this initial study <laughs> on, on a relatively, uh, let's say, small parameter space, because otherwise it, it opens up, you know, a huge uh, design space that would have been really hard to tackle. So, you know, from, from how we look at this kind of going forward, um, I think there's a lot of opportunities to, to potentially spatially grade. So change the cuts, for example, as a function of position to change the, the thickness or different properties of these endoskeletons as a function of position so that then you can, you know, induce, uh, you know, properties in different directions, properties at different locations. And, and I think that, you know, is a really exciting uh, possibility getting back to that idea of, you know, pixel by pixel control of, of properties, you know, maybe origami or kirigami has a place uh, in that kind of design space. Mm -hmm. Maybe I want to ask you again about uh, the cuts. How do you make sure the failure, or maybe if we speak about the fatigue, the crack, if we make a cut, how make sure this the sweet spot here, that make the function here, but not really fail after certain time. Yeah. Yeah. So that, 
that was something we thought about a lot because um, certainly when when you add the cuts into the material, the the stress is going to concentrate, you know, at the at the tip of that cut, and and there's been a lot of you know people who have you know studied ways to to mitigate the stress near the tip of the cut because that can lead to to failure to fatigue, you know, those sorts of things that we want to try to avoid. Um, so you know, for us. We, we found that, at least in our materials, we could, we could pattern them in geometries that worked for shape locking or shape fixing, and we could, we could deform those about twice their original length or 100% strain, and, and they would maintain their integrity. So the, the endoskeleton wouldn't break, the elastomer wouldn't break, there wouldn't be things like that. Um, and we could actually you know, go there... We, and then we could heat it up and come back. We could go there, heat it up and come back. And we could do that. I think we showed maybe 10 cycles in the paper. Um, one of the other things that we looked at was uh, what happens when it does break. So we did some experiments where uh, we, we took the material, we deformed it, and then we broke it uh, by hand. So we effectively like kind of cracked that endoskeleton. And it, it turned out that one of the benefits of, of utilizing this uh, this metal, which goes from a solid to a liquid, is that when we heat the metal back up and melt it, the, the two liquid fronts can actually come back and recombine and effectively heal that, that crack in the skeleton. So, you know, I, I think there's an advantage, again, having that, that heating component, having these, these materials that do go from a solid to a liquid, there, there is some opportunity there to, to, I think, you know, mitigate failure through healing um, and be able to do that. I think we showed it um, over a number of cycles. I think it was maybe, again, 10 cycles where we broke it, rehealed it, broke it, and rehealed it. Um, so I think that was one of the ways that we kind of approached this as well was to kind of, I guess we kind of got it kind of uh, by luck, by luck in a way. Uh, but, but the self-healing capability was, was good for making it more robust. Yeah, I really like it, uh, the structure and everything. Yeah, maybe we'll close, we'll close the end. I have a question for you. The first one, maybe we're still missing when it comes to shape morphing. If we can't just, yeah, when you have this look about uh, the shape morphing in the field, there's still there's something missing. What is this thing maybe missing still? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, again, when we, when we looked at this, um, we wanted complex shapes, hold the shape, go back to original shape. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we looked at here was, you know, the speed at which we can do that. So um, with what we did with this plasticity mechanism, it turns out that we showed in the paper where we kind of, you know, threw an, an impactor at a film. We, we found that when, when the, the impactor hit the material, it induced a very significant deformation. And when we, when we removed the impactor, that structure was held in place. So uh, effectively, we were able to, to very rapidly transform from a, a simple sheet to a very complex shape in about 0.1 seconds um, with this plasticity mechanism. However, um, although that was very fast, when we do turn on the heaters and we want to, to then melt the metal and then allow that elastomer to bring it back, you know, that can take, you know, tens of seconds, uh, minutes even, um, for, for the material to melt, to come back and then to resolidify. So, you know, we, we were able to make it, you know, very fast in, in one way, but there is still more to do in terms of making it fast all the time. Um, and, and again, this is where I think what's so, I think fun about this space is that right now there isn't, you know, one approach that is, is so much better than everything else because they all have their advantages or disadvantages. Um, for shape morphing, we've seen, you know, again, really fast actuation sometimes at small scales, uh, as I mentioned. We've also seen things like uh, electrostatic, so like dielectric elastomer actuators, DEAs, you know, those are great at, at moving quickly. And we've seen these, you know, hazel actuators as well, these kind of fluid-induced deformations. Um, and, and, and those can be very fast. So that's, you know, that's really exciting from that perspective. Um, but you know, in, in some of those, you know, I, uh, you know, I can't be, uh, too critical of the, of the success we've seen in that area, but, 
you know, they do take a fair amount of voltage, which everyone is really working to push down. Um, and, and sometimes you have to, you know, keep the power on, for example, to, to maintain a shape. Um, so they're super fast. They can be very uh, efficient. You know, they, they overcome some of the, the, the disadvantages to phase change materials, let's say. But there are advantages to phase change where they, where they do have, you know, things that work better than something like a dielectric elastomer actuator. Um, so in terms of what's missing, you know, to get back to the original point, I mean, we, if we could, I guess, create one approach that, you know, is fast, power efficient, holds shapes, can go to different shapes, can allow it to be, I think, you know, perform multiple functions. So, you know, one material can do a lot of different things. Um, I think, and there's probably even more to that, right? Um, you know, it has to be able to also take, you know, other components on board that it needs for whatever function. But I think that's what we really want to want to get towards is, is, is fast, efficient, can hold shape, can go different shapes, and, and can do this all while carrying everything else it needs, you know, and, and we're not there yet, uh, by any stretch. Um, and it's certainly something that a lot of people are looking at, kind of even as you mentioned, Marwa, early on was, you know, how do you, how do you, power it without giving it power, right? How do we maybe harvest energy or how do we get energy from the environment that we can utilize for what we need? Um, I think those are some of the big challenges that we still have. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Maybe a few questions, two questions left for you. I think the first one, um, if there's any crazy ideas when you think about it, uh, reshape morphing, sometimes beyond what we have in, yeah, realistic, but sometimes we imagine shape morphing would look like? I, I think, I guess I can kind of bring it back a little bit to what we talked about uh, in terms of, you know, pixel by pixel control. I, and again, I think biology does this beautifully. Um, again, the octopus can change local shapes on its skin, can you know dramatically change uh, its body shape. So it has like all these levels of, of reconfigurability. And, you know, I, I, I still think, you know, and I've, been thinking about this and, and trying to push towards it in, in some ways, which is, yeah, how, how do we get, you know, systems that are more lifelike that we can control, you know, pixel by pixel, incorporate sensing, actuation, energy harvesting, uh, you know, how do we make it so that, you know, again, if, if we look at biology or nature for inspiration, I mean, the octopus, you know, like, like a lot of things, they process everything on board. They carry all their own power. They, they have these amazing functions. You know, if you chop off one of their arms, it just grows a new one. Um, so, you know, for me, shape morphing, I guess it, it, it's, it's going to come back to, you know, fully integrated uh, sensing actuation, uh, computing <laughs> power, uh, and also probably healing, you know, the ability to regenerate, to be regenerative. Um, is also really exciting. So, I mean, I think that's kind of the the craziest I can think about would be to get you know all those in one material, uh, and and you know really push towards you know things that are more lifelike that don't require you know big hardware um, things of that nature. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe we'll get there in in the span of my career or everyone who's working on these things, but. You know, it's certainly a very uh, exciting possibility, I think. Wonderful. Maybe the last thing, there is something was counterintuitive sometimes. Yeah, I don't know if you encounter maybe in this paper or maybe in your work, something was counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense. Not explicable yet. Yeah. So something that's counterintuitive. Um, I mean, I, I guess the most counterintuitive aspect of this for me is, is how do you make something which is soft to deform yet stiff to support loads, to be able to incorporate different functions. Um, this was also something I, I looked at in the past in terms of controlling adhesion was to make a material both soft and stiff simultaneously. I mean, they're, they're completely at odds with each other. Right. Um, and it turns out that, for a lot of, at least in my lab, a lot of things that we want to do, we often are stuck <laughs> in this position, right? 
where, where it has to be soft, but it has to be stiff. And for us, that's, that's an exciting place because then you can begin to think about incorporating, you know, new materials, new geometries, maybe, um, have those properties or geometries change over time, whether that's, you know, through a, a programmed response or maybe some kind of stimuli turns that on. Um, but for us, I think that's an exciting uh, conundrum to be in, to be soft and stiff. Uh, and that opens up just a lot of, uh, I think, opportunities uh, to, to engineer materials, to, to design the structures. And then ultimately, you know, for us, I think in, in this community for soft robotics, you know, how can we leverage the softness and the stiffness while also incorporating, you know, the different components that we need uh, for the robotic function itself. Um, and again, this was something that we we looked at in this paper was to try to make these materials so that they were deformable, yet be able to hold uh, components and sustain the propulsion that we needed uh, for these different modes. So I guess, you know, to get back, we had we had this multifunctional drone it, it drove and then it had to it chain shape and then fly. So that that combination of, of soft and stiff was essential and also integrating the components. We also had this underwater vehicle. So this is a lot of work done by the other co-first author, Ted Barron, um, where we had this robot that uh, effectively was a, was a flat sheet. And then we deployed it into this, uh, let's say, a state that could be functional underwater. And... Uh, Again, we had to do the same things. It had to be soft enough to deform, rigid enough to maintain shape, but also have the ability to incorporate, in this case, uh, pneumatic actuation. We also used, uh, you know, water-based propulsion, and we had to put the heaters, you know, inside these materials as well. So again, I think that's something that that we're thinking a lot about: uh, soft and rigid while also being functional. Um, I think is is really an exciting uh, place to be. So. Yeah, again, I really like this paper so much, and and I don't know if you have any final words you'd like to say for people listening. Any final words you'd like to say? Yeah, I I mean, I guess I just want to say that um, you know this was a a paper that took you know for a lot of people, uh, you know, you get to see the final product, and it's it's a, I think uh, some work that we're really proud of. Um, but you know, the reason that this was successful was really because of of my students Dogu and Ted, and I also had a postdoc Hawk. Um, I mean, they worked tirelessly to get to get everything to work, to understand how it works. So, you know, I, I would really want to say that, you know, this is a very exciting paper and it, it is a paper that also, you know, really uh, forced us to, to think hard about what we were doing, to work hard, to get things to work, um, and then also to try to put it together so that we could explain it uh, uh, to the reader and, and make it a, something that could be compelling uh, and hopefully inspirational for, for some people. So, you know, this was, this was definitely one of those papers that uh, we really enjoyed working on. We had great feedback um, from people in the community and the reviewers that really helped push the paper forward. Um, so I definitely am just very appreciative of, of all the feedback and support that we got. Um, I just really want to give, you know, a lot of credit to the students who really, who really made this possible. So it was, it was very, a very fun project. <laughs>